0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 1st, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. And I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Penny Moore, the South African Research Chair of Virus Host Dynamics at the University of the Witwatersrand and the National Institute of Communicable Diseases in Johannesburg. She has a long history of studying HIV with a focus on antibody responses induced by infection and by experimental vaccines. With the advent of COVID-19, Penny's lab has shifted to use many of the same methods to understand SARS-CoV-2 and how antibody responses either succeed or fail in protecting us. Penny, let's start with the importance of the antibody response in mediating protection, either against infection or against severe disease. Certainly, antibody is only one component of the host response. Is there any way to judge how important it is as compared with, say, T-cell responses?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of redundancy that's been built into the immune system happily. So we know from lots of vaccine studies and from work with monoclonal antibodies as well that antibodies are really good at preventing infection. But in terms of prevention of severe disease, it's probably a lot more complex than that. And it seems most likely that prevention of severe disease is mediated by T cells and perhaps by non-neutralising antibodies. So neutralising antibodies are just one small portion of the antibody response against SARS-CoV-2. Those are the antibodies that block infection, but non-neutralizing antibodies recruit FC effector cells, and those may clear up infected cells after infection has happened. The thing about T-cells and about non-neutralizing antibodies is they have proven to be much more resilient against the variants of concern than the neutralizing antibodies. Neutralizing antibodies get knocked off by mutations quite easily, but the T-cells and the non-neutralizing antibodies, they've managed to hold on despite all the mutations that the various variants of concerns have picked up. The problem with the T-cells, and with the non-neutralising antibodies, is we have very little sense of how much is enough to prevent severe disease. We know quite a lot about antibodies. We have a good sense, relatively good sense, of how much antibody is enough. But when we think about T cells, we actually don't have a good way to measure that. It's probably for two major reasons. The first is that measuring T cell responses is much, much harder than measuring neutralising antibody responses. And you need cells to have been stored. And many times clinical trials Don't include those cells because it's incredibly difficult and expensive to store them. And then the other problem with understanding how much is enough when it comes to T-cells is that you need a correlation protection from severe disease. And actually, severe disease is becoming rarer and rarer. So it becomes increasingly difficult to actually design and conduct the experiments that we need to do to be able to understand how much is enough for T-cells.
2: So Penny, if I understand what you're saying, Neutralizing antibodies, you feel, are important for protecting against the initial infection, but not so much after that. I wonder about the role of secretory antibody. Do you think that it's important in protecting against an initial infection, or are high titers of circulating antibody good enough?
1: I don't think we know the answer, to be honest. I think it's one of the key outstanding questions. In almost all the work that we do in looking at responses to vaccination and to infection, we're measuring antibody responses in the blood. Very few studies have actually looked at antibody responses in mucosal secretions. I don't think we have a good handle at all about how much antibody is enough to prevent infection. We kind of assume that secretory responses in the nasal secretions should be a good thing. It's the first port of call for the virus. But actually, very few studies have looked at this directly. And I think it's a big gap in our understanding of the antibody response to infection and to vaccination, actually.
3: But if I understand you correctly, Penny, it may not be that neutralizing antibodies aren't important as the virus evolves. It's just that the immune system has layers. And there are layers of neutralizing antibody whose activity may be diminished as the virus mutates away from it. There are binding antibodies, which are probably a little less specific, that may play a role. So there's redundancy on the B cell side of the house, but there's also redundancy on the T cell side of the house in terms of CD4, CD8, and the variety of epitopes recognized associated with HLA types. Just sort of trying to look at, as you put it, the complexity and redundancy in the immune system, which is essential. Otherwise, pathogens would outsmart us.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, in terms of T cells, T cells recognize many more epitopes on the spike than most of the neutralizing antibodies. The neutralizing antibodies are kind of razor focused on two or three specific areas of the spike. And so any mutation in those areas has a huge impact on neutralizing antibodies. But the binding antibodies or non-neutralizing antibodies are very specific, actually. They're still very specific for the spike, but they recognize much larger chunks of the spike. In fact, they recognize almost the complete spike. And it's the same with the T-cell responses, CD8 responses, CD4 responses. They recognized large chunks of the spike. So a few scattered mutations, even as many mutations as we pick up in, in Omicron, has a huge impact on the neutralizing antibodies, but much less of an impact on binding antibodies and virtually no impact from what we've been able to see, fortunately, on the T cells. You know, even in Omicron, which had more than 30 mutations across the spike, we saw 80% above of the T cell activity retained. So it takes a lot more to knock those T cells off. And how much variety is
3: there in T-cell responses between different individuals with different HLA types?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not something that's been drilled down into properly, I don't think. The T-cells recognize vastly more epitopes, and so that enables coverage to be retained. And many times when people look at T-cell responses, they're using peptide pools. There's very little work, I think, being done drilling down into mapping specific epitopes that are recognized. And of course, as you say, HLA is going to play a role, and that's going to be population-specific.
0: As you suggest, one of the determinants of the success of a new viral variant is how well or how poorly it binds to antibodies that have been induced by vaccination or by previous infection. So in the laboratory, how do you measure that binding?
1: It's a really, really simple, straightforward experiment. What we do is we take blood from people who have been vaccinated or infected. We take the serum, which is the part of the blood that has the antibodies in it, and we essentially just mix it with some SARS-CoV-2 virus. We mix the two together. We allow the antibodies to bind to the virus, and then we measure how much of the virus in that mixture is still able to infect itself after we've mixed it with the antibodies. We know how much virus we put in, we know how much virus is left after we've mixed the two together, and what was taken away essentially, is that portion of the virus that was bound to the antibodies, and so we can work backwards. We know how much virus we put in, we know how much virus is left after we've mixed it with the antibodies, so we can work backwards and work out how good the antibodies were in those blood samples. And essentially that gives us a measure of what we call antibody potency, which is a measure of how good and how many of those antibodies were there. It's a bit more complicated than that because different people use different platforms. Some people mix the blood antibodies with live SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Others who don't have BSL-3 laboratories use what's called a pseudovirus system which is essentially a sort of a hobbled version of SARS-CoV-2 that to all intents looks and behaves like SARS-CoV-2, but is not able to replicate. And that's a nice safe system for people to be able to rapidly evaluate how good antibodies are. Of course, having those different platforms makes it really difficult to compare across different laboratories that are all using these different platforms. And that's been one of the big things that has made it in many cases difficult to work out how much is enough.
2: Penny, I know there have been moves to standardize across platforms so that one can make those comparisons. How have they succeeded or where have they failed?
1: Yeah, you know, this is a problem that goes back to in the HIV field where I worked for many, many years. We worked for decades, it feels, to standardize our assay. And and we did eventually succeed in that field. In SARS-CoV-2, I think it's at a much earlier stage, there are international standards that have been shared across laboratories and essentially everybody is using their different assay but normalizing to an international standard and that gives some sort of calibration factor that we can all use. But in reality, many of the data sets that have been generated in past experiments did not include that calibration factor. So it makes it difficult to look back to data that's been generated in previous experiments. But more and more, the field is moving towards some sort of standardization. And I think we're getting a much better handle on how well the different assays match one another. And they seem to match one another pretty well, which is helpful.
3: So on the laboratory side, standardization is important to be able to compare across laboratories and time and viruses. But as you talk about the potency of the antibody, I think you're getting at affinity maturation and how well the antibody is able to efficiently bind and presumably help clear or neutralize the virus. What are the factors that impact this affinity maturation or the improving quality of the antibody that an individual makes?
1: Yeah, this is a really cool aspect of B cell biology, which is that antibodies essentially compete with one another in our bodies to become better and better and better. They re-enter a germinal center, which is a structure where they compete with one another. And the antibody with the best binding potential outcompetes antibodies that are less good. And so those antibodies pick up more and more mutations, very much in the same way that the virus picks up mutations over time. And as those antibodies pick up beneficial mutations, they're selected for. And so over time in in infections, you get antibodies that pick up more and more good mutations, and that allows those antibodies to bind to the pathogen better and better. And we are seeing a lot of that in SARS-CoV-2, I think even more perhaps than we expected for an acute infection. It turns out that even after that initial infection, parts of the SARS-CoV-2 virions hang around in our bodies, and that provides an impetus for B cells to further compete and get better and better. And that's what we're seeing when we boost people again and again with vaccines, or in the context of infection, when people get infected and then reinfected. And if we take any given antibody after a boost or after a reinfection and pull out a single B cell clone, one specific antibody and look at it, you will see that it's picked up mutations that make it better and better compared to how it began, what its kind of ancestral sequence looked like. And it's a really useful aspect of B cell biology that enables our immune systems to improve constantly.
3: So does this help us inform as we think about vaccines and boosters, which is a big global question? Should there be some interval or some spacing that might facilitate maturation, at least theoretically?
1: Yeah, theoretically, a long gap is good for affinity maturation. But of course, in that time, you're balancing the risk that somebody becomes infected because they don't have sufficiently good antibody responses. So, at the population level, maybe it makes sense to have a nice long gap between your first vaccination and your second vaccination. But at the individual level, I want my antibodies nice, high titers. And so, probably from my perspective, I would want to get that vaccine boost sooner rather than later. So, it's a little bit of a trade off, I guess. Sure. But when you say a long gap,
3: are you talking a month, a year, a decade?
1: I think people generally speak in the order of months between boosts rather than weeks. Our early vaccine experiments in SARS-CoV-2, we were talking in the order of weeks, and that seems now to be extending more and more. And as we see those larger gaps, we do see increased affinity maturation.
3: Because I agree, Penny, I don't want to give the implication that people shouldn't be boosted. But the scientific principle that there's a balance here with some time between priming or prior antigen exposure and boosting, on the order of months, probably afford some room for immune maturation to improve the quality of the antibodies and the immune response in total.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think the B cell biology is there. We understand what's happening. But as I say, I think we're balancing it with people's individual needs to have nice high titers and protect themselves from infection where possible.
0: In parts of South Africa, there have been very high rates of infection and consequently an immune response How do you think about the differences between the antibody response induced by infection and the antibody response induced by vaccination?
1: Yeah, in South Africa, we have a hugely high seropositivity rate. There was a paper that came out actually in NEJM a few months ago now that showed that before the Omicron wave in South Africa, about 70% of our population had antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, suggesting they'd been infected. And actually just this week, a paper, not yet peer-reviewed, has suggested that it's close to 98% of South Africa has antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So it's crazy high levels of prior infection. I think there are really at least two main differences between immune responses that are triggered by infection compared to vaccination. The one comes back to what we were speaking about earlier, which is mucosal responses. Vaccination seems to trigger really, really good blood antibodies but it's infection that really triggers particularly good mucosal responses. So people who've been infected most likely have better mucosal responses than people who've been vaccinated. And people who have hybrid immunity, a mixture of vaccination and then infection or infection and then vaccination or whatever permutation of that, those people would likely have very good mucosal responses. The other major difference between people who've been infected compared to people who've been vaccinated is the fact that vaccines generally only contain the spike protein whereas in infection, people's immune systems are exposed to the entire virion. And particularly from a T-cell perspective, that's really important because T-cell epitopes span many more parts of the virion than just the spike protein. So it's likely that both at the antibody level and at the T-cell level that the responses are qualitatively different, depending on whether you've been vaccinated or infected. You get great antibodies regardless, and you get great T-cells regardless, but there are probably some more subtle differences in quality between those two scenarios.
0: One of the difficulties throughout the epidemic has been our inability to predict how well prior immunity, whether induced by infection, vaccination, or a combination of the two, will protect against newly emerging strains. In fact, we only have very rough correlates of protection, even against homologous strains. Do you see approaches that can offer better predictions and better correlations?
1: It's really hard to do that. At the antibody level, we're getting much better, I think, at identifying a new variant and putting that variant into our neutralizing antibody assays and working out quite quickly how sensitive that variant is to neutralizing antibodies. At the T-cell level, fortunately, so far, the T-cells haven't changed very much. So T-cells are relatively equally good against the ancestral SARS-CoV-2 variant as they are against the new variants of concern. But predicting how those two translate into actual protection from infection and protection from severe disease, I think is much more complicated than simply measuring test tube measurements of immunity. It has to take into account transmissibility and virulence and super spreader events that are epidemiological in nature and very difficult to predict. So from my point of view, the short answer is it's still really, really difficult to predict with any accuracy when a variant is going to pop and which variant may have an advantage over other variants. In South Africa, we've watched lots of many highly mutated variants emerge in our genomic surveillance. And we've oftentimes been wrong about variants that we think have all the features of a really dangerous variant that just don't seem to go anywhere. So I think it's a really complicated mixture. Maybe the clever mathematical modelers are able to pull all of those pieces of information together, but, but I think it's very difficult to accurately predict with any sense which variant is going to pop and which variant is not.
2: Penny, I wonder, getting back to a previous question, I wonder if the complexity of the antibody response is part of it. You talked about relatively simple assays for measuring antibody, but then went into the fact that, of course, antibody is an array of molecules all being produced at once, all with different affinities, all with different FC regions, all of which have their own properties. And we don't have assays that can easily measure that complexity. And I wonder if there's something hidden in that complexity that might be a better predictor.
1: You know beyond the neutralization assay which i've spoken about we have lots of different assays for measuring fc effector function so we can measure phagocytosis and we can measure complement deposition and we can measure neutralization and we can use very simple protein analyzes to measure bulk antibody responses but you're right we're not really measuring with any certainty what's really happening in people in almost all of the experiments that we do in the lab we're using cell lines. And those don't necessarily represent the cells. In fact, they definitely don't represent the cells that are actually doing the work in our immune systems. So at best, all of these measurements are correlative. I think some of them are really good in terms of predicting actual outcomes. The neutralizing antibody data that's been generated in the lab nicely matches what we see in effectiveness studies across the world. But yeah, I agree, Eric, we're missing a whole ton of nuances in the immune system.
3: And those nuances may be interdependent where one effect may have an upregulation or downregulation of another effect. But I want to pivot a little bit to a simpler question. How do you develop a correlate of protection? Because you talked about trying to predict in the lab what will protect, what won't, which virus will escape, which won't. But how do you actually go about developing a correlate of protection?
1: So it's a difficult thing to answer because correlative protection from what? Um, when we think about correlates of protection from infection, much of the work that's been done is in antibodies, neutralizing antibodies. And we have a fairly reasonable threshold now, above which we think that if there's still activity, we're likely to see prevention from infection, below which we're unlikely to see that. Yeah, that was relatively easy to measure early on when we had a nice clean system. We had people who had never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. We gave them a vaccine. We counted the number of infections. We measured the neutralizing antibody titer in those individuals. And it was relatively easy to find a number. How meaningful that number is is subject to debate, but it was relatively easy to find a number. But it's become impossibly more complicated now because almost nobody falls into that category of nice, clean immune responses anymore. So measuring titers is becoming very difficult because almost everybody has antibodies, which complicates matters. And as I said earlier, measuring correlates of protection from T cells is just becoming close to impossible now because so many people have immunity at some level to SARS CoV 2 that the numbers of severe infections, happily, fortunately for all of us, the number of severe infections is falling. And so the number of individuals that you would need to measure to be able to have T cell data on a significant proportion of people who became severely ill is just becoming a numbers game. It's becoming virtually impossible.
0: As you've said, SARS-CoV-2 has developed several mutations along the way that have allowed it to escape from ideal binding to antibodies. But there are constraints on the virus since the same amino acid residues that bind to antibody are necessary to engage its cellular receptor and cause infection. So another request for a prediction. Do you think that these constraints are going to ultimately limit the ability of a new highly virulent strain to develop in a population with lots of pre-existing immunity?
1: I think this is a totally impossible question. I think the one thing that we've learned in this epidemic is not to try to predict anything that this virus does. But I think a few things are certain with the number of transmissions that still occur across the world, with the fact that in many, many countries, particularly in Africa, vaccine rollouts have been poor. I think one thing is certain is we're going to see new variants. The virus is constantly trading things off. Mutations that occur in the virus occur randomly, but selection occurs. So although the mutations may be random, whether or not they persist in a viral population and come to dominate at kind of a population level, that depends on how they help the virus. And it's always a trade-off. This is what viruses do. They pick up mutations, in this case in SARS-CoV-2, It's oftentimes doing a trade-off in mutations, particularly in the receptor binding domain, which is both the part of the virus that binds to ACE2, but also the target of most of the neutralizing antibody responses. So you'll get constant toggling within this region. I think that the high levels of population immunity out there may mean that we're getting fewer severe diseases, but at the moment we're seeing huge numbers of transmissions as everybody knows, and every transmission comes with a risk that virus is gonna pick up more mutations. And I definitely don't think that we can assume that all variants looking forward are going to be variants that are of lower virulence. I don't think we can assume that at all. The mutations that give a virus an advantage in terms of transmissibility versus immune evasive properties, they're often different. And what we do know from all viruses, I mean, years of studying HIV, I can tell you that the virus is very, very good at circumventing our immune responses.
2: You know, Penny, I think it's really important to separate transmissibility from virulence. They are very much different things in the case of many diseases virulence may be caused by damage to deep tissues, for example, that result in more morbidity, where transmissibility is really going to be dictated by how many viruses get expelled and have the ability to survive and transmit to another host. And we don't have very good models for that. We're stuck with humans and epidemiology to try to understand that. So I'm basically giving you excuses for not answering the question that Steve, uh, that Steve just
3: asked. Thank you. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but Penny, as we think about there's coevolution, as you are alluding to between the host and the pathogen, something you've focused on for quite some time. Is there an asymptote? You know, where the virus and its new host, us, are able to come to an equilibrium where its ability to make jumps that create devastation become less likely because we've coadapted. And is that something that has gone on with measles and mumps and some other viruses? granted DNA versus RNA, and so there are a variety of differences there between some of the viruses, particularly the herpes group. But is there a coevolution that is going on that we are witnessing in hyperdrive over the last two years because we're intensively studying as much as we can as quickly as possible? Will we reach an equilibrium where it's less likely to have a virulence jump?
1: That is always the dogma with viruses, but you know, the time frame is different. So I'm often asked by people, are we, you know, in the next couple of months, in the next year, will we reach that stage? But I think that we think of the timeframe all wrong when we think like this, because I think we're talking in the order of decades rather than weeks and months. And I think this is something that people have to get clear in their heads is that that may happen. I hope it will happen, but it's not gonna happen this year or next year.
0: Thank you, Penny, very much for joining us this week. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.